Hi, I'm Sonia. Hi, I'm Sapna. And this is Loudmouth Lurkies. Welcome back, Lurkies. We hope you're doing okay, at least for us. Um, finals week is approaching very, very quickly, quicker than we'd probably want. Um, and I know for both of us, we've been talking a lot about how are we keeping ourselves grounded? How are we making sure we're breathing and eating and sleeping and doing all of that? Um, so I think for the next few weeks, self-care is going to be super, super important for all of us. Absolutely. And, you know, a huge part of us starting this podcast was not only to explore the intersection of our identities, um, you know, of being South Asian and American, but also a huge focus has been to destigmatize mental illness in the South Asian community. And so self-care is like right up our alleyway. Um, and some would say we are the queens of self-care. If you would. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. That'd be cool. I love that title. Um, but it's something that, at least for me, I'm still working on all the time. Um, and I think that's a huge part of self-care is it's a journey. Um, but Sonia, what would you say self-care is? I know it's a term that's thrown, o- thrown around a lot, um, but what is it fundamentally? Yeah. So I think for the longest time, self-care has like, no one really questioned what that meant. And only recently have we started to see um, self-care being addressed in different contexts. Um, I'm going to read this quote that I love by Sedge Coley from Brown Girl Therapy. Um, She says, self-care for children of immigrants can look different. It's learning to differentiate between what's good for you and what looks good to others. It's learning that your independence and choices won't actually kill your parents or family members no matter how much they say it will. And I think that that was a really great reminder for me because, you know, in in mainstream media, self-care is putting on a face mask and like going to the spa. And I am probably like the biggest culprit of that. Like, (laughs) I think I've mentioned this before in in the podcast, but I love face masks. They're one of my favorite thing in the world and they are my go-to self-care. Um, practice (laughs) but but self-care goes beyond that it's not just like it's not capitalism is what I'm trying to get at yeah it's not like certain products that you might need certain this and that and I think that's what we see a lot is oh you want to practice wellness buy this this and this do this guided meditation that you have to pay forty dollars for and this and that um but that's kind of what I've been seeing a lot but one one maybe phrase that really is stuck with me in terms of what self-care is, is prioritizing wellness, whatever that means to, to you. And it looks different for every person. And that's the biggest part of it is that self-care doesn't look one way because all of us live different lives. All of us seek um, comfort in different things. And that's a huge part of what self-care is. And it's also kind of just realizing what needs do you need fulfilled? And that's why self-care looks so different. Like, where are you now? What do you need? What are you missing out on? And how do you balance your life from there? A hundred percent. 
A hundred percent. And I think another thing that's really important to note is that self-care has existed for a long, long time. Like it feels relatively new because we've only recently had the vocabulary and the language to talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like think about it. Did our parents know the term self-care? No, but that doesn't mean it hasn't existed. Our ancestors practice self-care for centuries. One of my favorite examples of this is Bhangra. So I am Punjabi. I was born in Punjab. I am a Bhangra dancer through and through. Um, But something that is kind of important to remind myself of is that Bhangra came out, like came to, because it was a way to one, celebrate the harvest, and also to take a break from farming. So in between like arduous labor and hard days, Punjabi farmers would start doing pangra or what is now pangra. And that's a form of self-care, right? Without even mm-hmm. like putting the word self-care to it. Absolutely. Celebrating and taking a break was in the form of, of dance is self-care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that really begs the question, when, especially when you're thinking about the fact that it has existed for a long time and our ancestors have done it and people all around the world have done it. It's not something that is just done in America or just done among uh, certain ethnic groups or whatever. But the whole idea of, okay, well, if it's been around for forever, why is it that we're just getting the vocabulary for it now? And I think a lot of it comes down to who is talking about it and which audience is self-care given out to or what, what audience is it marketed for? And so that Naps goes into, that. yep, and that goes Naps into the huge that. question. That goes into the huge question is why has it been so mainstreamed and what are the effects of that? Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, the topic of today's episode comes through decolonizing self care. And I want to be clear that we're not using decolonize in um, as a metaphoric phrase. I'm literally talking about how do we decolonize self care because there are so many like ancient South Asian pre-Vedic like practices that are rooted in South Asian culture that have now been commodified and sold back to us by the West. And so that's what I mean by decolonizing self-care, this act of reclamation by South Asian folks. Yeah. And we'll, we'll go into this more as the episode goes on, but it is more than just, oh man, they're taking our culture and selling it back to us. But it really goes down to self-care is so important to us to avoid burnout, to keep our mental health in check and, and this and that. And by commodifying it, by making it super capitalistic and something, some, something that you were able to buy in a, in a box, um, I think that that's important to remember that as soon as we start watering it down, we lose the very essence of it. So I think that's kind of the message that we're going at is there are ways to keep our self-care culturally responsive. Um, 100%. So let's start off with, you know, the favorite one that everyone always talks about, uh, just to kind of tease people in. Sabna, let's talk about yoga. Of course. Namaste, right? Am I right? (laughs) Am I right? Um, Yeah, yoga is something that I think a lot of us recognize has been um, definitely, definitely mainstreamed beyond belief. I know growing up, I never thought it would um, 
progressed to this point, but especially over the last maybe 10 years or so, super, super caught the eyes of everyone. Um, and I think a lot of people see it as, as a way to center themselves or um, stabilize themselves, which is great. I love that. That's what yoga is for. Um, so it's really cool to see people using it. But um, it's important to remember that it is rooted in ancient pre-Vedic India. Um, and so many people of the South Asian diaspora have ancestors who've been practicing this. Um, and yoga, for anyone who might not know, um, is a group of physical, mental, spiritual practices, um, which did originate in the subcon subcontinent. Um, but yoga is practiced by people of many, many different uh, faith traditions. So it did root in Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism. Um, but what does it look like now, Sonia? What is what do you think when you hear yoga? White people. <laughs> Exactly. I think of white suburban moms in LA. Um, just like, what is, I mean, when I think of yoga, unfortunately, and for a, not even just now, but like throughout my life, I thought like it wasn't to me, I knew it was a like a South Asian thing. Like I knew that obviously, right? But then growing up, I never saw it being done by South Asians or being taught by South Asians. And so I see it now as like two-pronged, right? One is like fit yoga, like hit classes being taught by Jenny on the block. Like, um, <laughs> <laughs> like that's what I see it as. And the, then the other is like Babas in like India who are like doing those really fast breathing techniques, yeah. um, which I know, they, which I know that's not what it is, but like, that's what I think of. And it was really difficult for me to come to terms with it because like, I don't want this conversation to center around appropriation because like, while it is in a, for lack of better words, an appropriate conversation to have, um, people have had that conversation. We're not really gonna add any value here by continuing yeah. to talk about that. What I wanna talk about is how I felt alienated from the practice of yoga because it, to me seemed like a white suburban mom thing, right? And so um, I held off from doing yoga for the longest time, but I, like, I knew I wanted to do it. Um, I knew it would add a lot of value to my life. And so I started looking for like, how can I practice this? Are there any YouTubers who are, you know, like South Asian that I can kind of follow along where I feel like I'm getting, you know, those health benefits, but I also feel like I'm not turning my back on my people. And I came across um, Herpinder Mun, who actually did a IGTV um, for us during our uh, suicide awareness week um, back in September. And she and I talked about this. She's a yoga practitioner and she has her own classes. I would highly recommend checking her out. She does remote classes, but we talked about it and it was very reaffirming for me to speak with someone who recognized that. Um, and she shared with me this book by Dr. Gail Parker. Um, it's called Restorative Yoga for Ethnic and Race-Based um, and Trauma, right? And so I think it's, it's an interesting conversation to have where as we gain more information and as we as South Asians gain more of a platform, 
that we really take time to, to reclaim our practices. And I think that goes into what we're talking about um, and what Sonia was saying earlier. Um, and the whole idea is we're not trying to gatekeep, especially when it comes to, to yoga, because we all know that's something that so many people benefit from. And I've talked to this, I've talked about this with my dad a lot um, because, you know, my question was, can I be angry about white people doing yoga when I don't do yoga or I've never tried to learn authentic yoga or none of my parents, like none of my family members uh, in India do it uh, really stringently or anything like that. And then he would always bring up this whole concept of globalization, you know, as the world progresses, as the world becomes more connected, there are going to be practices that people from other cultures take and modify and sell. Like that's just a way that globalization works. And I think it is important to acknowledge that other perspective because I'm sure many of you listening feel the same way as in why is this a problem? Why does this matter? Um, But I think what Sonia is talking about when we're looking at that book by Dr. Gail Parker, Restorative Yoga for Ethnic and Race-Based Trauma and and all of that is understanding that these self-care practices have very, very real life implications. And as soon as we start straying away from the true intention of these practices, that's when we start coming into issues. And moreover, it's so important for us to understand the implications that these practices have when we are selling it back to communities and making sure that it is very, very culturally responsive and it's specific uh, to the communities that we're working with, which once again brings us to the conversation beyond yoga, because it is honestly so much more than that. Yeah. So you know, I think the natural succession of, of things is yoga, meditation. Um, and so speaking of meditation, like meditation, mindfulness and meditation, um, I'll, I'll be using them kind of interchangeably in this episode. Um, they do have some differences, but for, for this episode, I'll be using them uh, interchangeably. So they are practices that stem from similar to yoga from South, like Eastern, East Asian, South Asian roots, right? Mindfulness, meditation, we see those rooted in Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, in pre-Vedic eras, uh, very closely tied to yoga, right? This idea of being present and um, being with yourself and being present, right? So taking this idea that this is a historically South Asian, East Asian practice, right? Sapna, what do you think of meditation and mindfulness when you think of it today? Yeah. um, Well, I went to a Catholic high school um, and my high school in our religion classes, we always did like mindfulness meditations and like coloring and this and that. I personally never found meditation to work for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that was a mental block or me being like, this is not going to work for me. Um, and just feeling so detached from it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of why I've not found it very helpful, but I, I do think, but like with its roots, it should be very good for someone like me whose mind's running a, a million miles at once. Yeah. Um, I know it should work for me, but it doesn't. Um, and I think that is part of the cultural disconnect is it just feels like it's not made for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's super white. Like that's, that's exactly how I've always felt about it. Yeah. Um, And so that's super interesting to me and very intriguing to me because like you would assume that 
something like yoga, something like mindfulness, something like meditation that has been created by our ancestors and practiced by our ancestors would be more accessible to people of color, but it's not. So kind of going back through the history of like, how did mindfulness come to be such the, such a huge thing in Western culture? Um, mindfulness and so mindfulness is used as a form of therapy. Okay, so John Zabitzin is the father of dialectical behavioral therapy. And he went and studied somewhere in a Buddhist uh, monastery, came back and was like, hey guys, I learned about mindfulness and it's amazing. And I think it would have like these fantastic, like um, this would be a fantastic practice for our clients, okay? forms DBT with a so, uh, like a focus on mindfulness. But over time, the paying homage to Eastern culture and like centering mindfulness as an Eastern practice has been lost into clinical translation, okay? So you have MBSR, which is mindfulness-based stress reduction. And it's been found to be super, super effective for folks who have suffered from anxiety, depression, PTSD. You hear this all the time. Some You're like, you tell someone that you're stressed and the first thing that they'll say is, okay, we'll meditate. Okay, great, sure. But is this meditation, is this mindfulness accessible to people of color? And I'm not even just saying like South Asians. I'm saying people in the Black community, people in the Latinx community, um, people in Native communities, right? Like, it's not accessible, one, because they're not, like, these these uh, therapies are not being, for lack of better words, tested, but, like, researched in these communities. And yeah, by and large, it's, like, was not made for us. And it's, it's very clear when we utilize these and consume these that it's, like, they weren't thinking about us when mm -hmm. they made it. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're we're having this conversation because it's important for anyone in these fields to understand the importance of making it accessible to a wide variety of people. Yeah, and I think like, and that's that's really what's driving me and my research and like um, why I want to go to grad school and why I'm applying for grad school and all of that, right? Like I see that this community, right? People of color, BIPOC communities are 10 times more likely like as a whole to experience, to have traumatic experiences, right? Like communities of color experience mental illness far more, like far more than our white peers and our white communities. Um, and you would think that if mindfulness-based stress reduction or mindfulness theories or mindfulness and meditation practices have been so successful, why aren't they being utilized for communities of color? And that's because if I go into a poor, uh, like low socioeconomic status community with people of color and I'm like, hey guys, let's go meditate. They're gonna be like, absolutely not. One, I don't have time for this. Two, that's white people shit. Like for like, that's just what it is. And that's how people are seeing it. Absolutely. And so it's completely inaccessible. And I think that's part of where this conversation of decolonizing self-care comes from. For sure. And 
once again, it's not just yoga, it's not just meditation, but we're seeing this even just beyond um, those two, like in terms of Ayurveda. And that's something we've been thinking a lot about recently, um, given our episode with Rushi just a few weeks ago. Um, and we've spoken to Arjun from Soma Ayurvedic about this too. And there's just so much of this idea of taking it, selling it back. Um, that has been done a lot with Ayurvedic practices as well. Um, yeah. And I mean, listen, like we live in a capitalistic society, like things are going to be bought and sold, which is and globalized. Fine, yeah, is exactly. Fine. And we're not going to say like, don't do that. Right. Like we obviously support, you know, brands like Avrani and Soma Ayurvedic. And you could argue like, Hey, they're, they're selling these things. But the idea is that like, if they're selling it, it's coming from people who like truly understand the value of these things. Absolutely. And they know the roots of it. They know the history of it. And then more importantly, they know the communities that would go back and benefit from them. And so that's a huge part of it is just making it specific to the audience. And that's why we appreciate these brands so much that have that as their forefront. Yeah. And so Arjun um, from Soma Ayurvedic, we were were chatting with him, I want to say about a month ago, uh, when we were doing our giveaway with them. And he he shared with us, you know, how his grandfather um, really inspired him to do this. And um, this idea of like reclaiming um, and this idea of reclaiming was really at the forefront of this movement and this mission with Soma Ayurvedic. And the other thing I want to say is like, not only are Rushi and Arjun, um, you know, taking Ayurvedic practices, which have, you know, um, existed for centuries, again, um, not only are they taking it and cultivating it in a way that is accessible, they're also giving back to communities and they're paying homage to their communities. So both literally and figuratively. Um, I know Somayar Vedic is giving back to school children in um, Kerala and Avrani just uh, announced that they're partnering with another organization. And so it makes it feel a lot more accessible to me, but also I feel as a consumer so mm-hmm. much better about purchasing their products. Absolutely. Because it's not just taking something and then not looking back at the communities we took from. Um, and so Ayurveda, as a lot of you may know, has become a buzzword in the beauty and lifestyle community. And we were speaking with um, Rushi about this and it's kind of, we're, we're liking to see it as the next wave uh, after K-beauty. Um, but it's super interesting as it gains popularity and gains steam, that it's something, once again, that it is becoming mainstream for the white consumer. Um, and, and I also so- want to add that, like, for the longest time, Ayurveda has been called a pseudoscience and, like, Absolutely. quackery. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as it becomes mainstream, it's something that everyone wants and wants to profit off of. Um, and But that's important is like remembering that it's the, you want to focus on the communities and you want to give back to the communities as well. So Sapna, how does this translate to healthcare? 
Yeah. Um, that's a super good point. As someone for me, I want to go into healthcare and I've gotten the opportunity to read some amazing literature about it and about um, Eastern medicine plus Western medicine and all of that. And actually in my Asian American studies class, my freshman year of college, um, we read this book called The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down by Anne Fadiman. Um, Yeah, so it's a really, really fascinating book about a Hmong immigrant family in the United States. And pretty much they're experiencing some health issues and they go through the healthcare system and it feels completely, completely off for them because people aren't really appreciating, acknowledging their, this family's inclination to also trust Eastern medicines and, and not wanting to give uh, different types of medications uh, a try because there's just that sort of mistrust or misunderstanding and things like that. And the biggest kind of takeaway I had from this book was the importance of doctors or healthcare providers to kind of understand with a lens of empathy, um, understanding that different people have different cultures and that very much informs what they want to try in the exam room and what they are okay with taking um, in, in terms of medications. And so overall, we see this huge dichotomy, this huge duality of a immigrant family trying to understand and navigate through the healthcare system, not knowing if their doctors or the people that they're seeing would want to acknowledge their Hmong culture. Um, and it's, this book is an amazing example of the importance of like understanding medicine and healthcare through a lens of anthropology and through a lens of once again, this, this term we've been throwing around a lot, which is um, cultural humility. And just the huge, huge importance of recognizing that we have to meet people where they're at. We have to understand that people come from different places and have their different um, preconceptions before because that's just who we are. Um, And taking that, acknowledging that and working with people um, where they are. I love hearing you talk about this because cultural competency, cultural responsiveness, you know, the the phrase changes over time as we learn more, um, but originally coined as cultural competency um, is, one of my one of my favorite things to talk about and and another huge driving factor in in why you and I are doing what we want to do and pursuing what we want to do. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So so I think that comes back to, you know, you you talked about trust and and meeting people where they're at. How do we connect back into our roots in a way that's more empowering for us? So how do we you know, decolonization is a long process because yeah. it, it means dismantling systems. But the part that I find the most empowering is the reclamation part, right? Mm-hmm. Like when we as South Asians are, are taking ownership um, in a way that isn't gatekeeping. And I want to emphasize that again, because I'm going to be the last person to be like, you are not South Asian, you can't practice yoga. That's not the point because we recognize that like these are things that have been practiced for centuries by our people and like they have benefits. They Mm -hmm. have so many benefits and I don't want us to be the only ones to have that. You know, like mindfulness, for example, kind of going back to it, like 
it shouldn't only be for one group of people. Mm-hmm. But I think when you reclaim these things, you understand again, like what is the, the perspective that they're coming from so mm-hmm. that we can adapt that in a way that is more inclusive and culturally responsive. Absolutely. And it's, it's once again about yoga, it's about um, meditation and mindfulness. It's about Ayurveda and um, different types of medicine. You know, it's, it's so many ways that we're seeing this, that there are so many lens with which we can look at these things and groups like Avrani and Soma are using this to pay homage to the people where it came from. And um, definitely so many different yoga practices are trying to make sure that it's working in different communities and same thing with meditation. Um, And I think the biggest thing is coming back to, is it culturally relevant? Does it have a connection to, um, to the people who it's marketed to and where it comes from? Um, But I think it is hard. Once again, we're not trying to gatekeep and say who can or cannot sell these products or who can or cannot um, profit off of them. Uh, but I think the biggest thing to remember is that it is it is complex. <laughs> We're not going to solve this whole de- this whole colonization issue um, by a few actions. It's an ongoing conversation, and I think that's the most exciting part. That like this is an open, ongoing conversation. We don't solve these things right away, mm-hmm. and that also means that there are solutions that we haven't thought of, ways to approach this that we haven't thought of, and that is the most exciting thing for me. Absolutely. And then just for as another closing line, just thinking about if any of you are interested in fields or uh, professions where you're going to be working with the diverse population, just understanding that that people come from different places and have different um, perceptions of things and making sure that we're meeting people where they're at, Mm -hmm. I think is the biggest thing. And in the spirit of self-care and the new year, we actually partnered with an amazing artist who we worked with in season three, Roshni, um, who owns Colors of Roshni, uh, to bring you Loudmouth Ledke mental health affirmation cards that emphasize culturally responsive self-care. And we're really, really excited to launch these. So uh, make sure you check out our Instagram page um, to see how you can get these and stay tuned. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Loudmouth Ledkeys. You can catch us next week on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. A huge shout out to Rishi and Ash from Dewey Apricot for the gorgeous episode artwork this season. Make sure to subscribe and DM or email us your DD Corner questions, spicy stories, and chai-worthy drama. We'd love to hear your thoughts, and we'll see you next week. Come,